Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. I would like to share with you our recent conversation with Rhea Tobacco Marr, the Women's Project Director at the ACLU, and Kate Kendall, former Executive Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. This was a powerhouse panel, and it was a conversation that was part of our Pride Power Lunch series. On this episode, we talked about the recent Supreme Court victory and what it means for LGBT people with a lawyer in the case. The conversation was moderated by LGBT Bar Association of New York board member Cody York of Oaten and Golden. At the beginning, we talked about the Supreme Court victory and what it meant for LGBT people. Of course, on June 15th, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 6-3 decision, ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, also protects employees from discrimination on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. The panel noted that it was a major victory, even though the language of the opinion was fairly muted and straightforward. Essentially, Rhea pointed out that the plaintiffs got everything that they were asking for here. Kate noted that this decision will likely be used to apply to healthcare, education, military, housing, credit, and so many other areas where sex is already prohibited by statute. The panel acknowledged that Gorsuch made clear that when it comes to LGBT discrimination in the workplace, quote, sex plays a necessary and indisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids, close quote. While advocates had been advancing several theories, including a sex stereotyping theory and an associational theory, in the end, it was a but-for theory that carried the day, that being that but for taking sex into account, the discrimination involved wouldn't have happened. Let's join this program as Cody tees up a question about bisexual and gender nonconforming people and their ability to receive protections under this victory. The first person you'll hear responding is Rhea. Kate will follow. I'm going to step back and leave it to this awesome panel. I promise it's not worth missing. Add, uh, a panel that was all about the B. Um, and, you know, the panelists pointed out that, you know, bisexual and, and pan members of our community are so often absent in these big decisions. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Does this decision also protect bisexual and pan folks from discrimination? So I think it does, um, but there's no question that there's major bisexual erasure in the opinion. And, you know, this is one place where I think there was perhaps not as much learning. I mean, we saw, to Kate's point, even during the course of the two hours of argument in October, we saw many of the justices starting out saying biological sex. By the end of that two hours, some of them had come along saying assigned sex at birth. Um, I think realizing that that was the way to go, and we obviously saw more learning. When it comes to LGB people, we see instead, you know, repeated references to people who are homosexual, homosexuals. Um, that is not a word that any of the plaintiffs' counsel used in briefs or arguments, to be clear. That's not a word that I think most of us use to describe ourselves at this moment in time. Um, I don't think it was intended in a disrespectful way, but, you know, it's not how we describe ourselves, and it also does not describe all of us. Um, that being said, I think when you look at the actual reasoning of the opinion, I think it 100% applies to bisexual people. For that matter, it applies to heterosexual people. The point is you cannot describe a person's sexual orientation without reference to sex. 
there's a great line where, where Gorsuch says, you know, just try to define it. Just do it. Try to do it without using the word man, woman, or sex. And don't cheat and say, well, I can do it using gender, you know, or a female or some kind of synonym. Just try to describe what is sexual orientation without using man, woman, or sex or some synonym. Can you do it? Um, you can't. And I think that's obviously true for homosexual people, as he describes. It's also true for heterosexual people. It is also true for bisexual people. So I think the reasoning of this opinion um, does what we needed to do. It gets us all of the way there. Um, I'm not quite sure, you know, why the opinion was written using the word homosexual, except perhaps that uh, maybe in an, in an overburst of confidence after, you know, the wins in, in earlier decisions, you know, we, and by we, I mean plaintiff's counsel and amici, may not have done as much education on the LGB side as folks did on the trans side. Um, and maybe perhaps that's a, a consequence. You know, Cody, I don't know where you're going to go next, and maybe this is a little bit off point. Um, so, you know, just pull me back or whatever. But just another kind of 30,000-foot observation, and I guess it comes from some of the moment that we're in, this sort of national convulsion around how our failure to deal with structural racism and the endurance of white supremacy. And, and I do feel like what I felt on Monday morning, I, you know, the initial shock and then the joy and relief. And then I will say, by sort of the end of the day, there was a little tinge of anger that we were on pins and needles about whether or not it would be prohibited for us to be fired from jobs based on who we love or the gender we present and the gender we are. And, um, and it, it, it should not, we should not live by such a thin reed and that's a bigger question for the kind of social transformation i think we're seeking but i do think it's really important to recognize that the what undergirds the entire ruling is the 1964 civil rights act which was fomented and fought for uh uh, with a trail of mostly black, but also brown bodies to get to that point. And while it includes sex and was obviously meant to address sex discrimination, you know, racial discrimination and racial inequality and injustice uh, had a lot to do with the impetus for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So in some ways it feels a little bit fitting that we win based on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, our community wins. But I think it's enormously important to understand the shoulders we stand on, and particularly in this national moment, how it means that we show up for a fight that is uh, that is has endured long too long, and that is the fight for full racial justice and inclusion, and and to dismantle the superstructures that support white supremacy and racism. So it, all of it, kind of comes together, and I hope that we can move to a moment where. Uh, there's no part of either our community or our broader communities, and obviously we're represented in every single community, that has felt the sting of discrimination and felt vulnerable, uh, where you have to worry up until the very last second whether you're going to be protected in the most basic function that you have in civil society, being able to support your family uh, by five or thankfully six justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks. Um, I agree. Uh, so I think it would be great to, you know, open the floor to questions. You can type your question into the chat feature or you can use the raise hand function. I know somebody already asked um, what this means for transgender health protections, but I think Kate, you already 
address that question earlier. So it would be great to see what other questions folks have. Yeah, and while we're waiting for questions in the chat, I really do want to underscore that point that Kate made, which is, you know, the HHS rule that dropped last week, that rule is dead on arrival, just to be 100% clear. Um, it is dead on arrival, it is done. Um, and it's not just that rule. I mean, the Trump administration has essentially staked its entire anti-LGBT and primarily anti-T, but also anti-LGBT and anti-woman. This entire attack has been premised on the idea that sex must mean biological sex, whatever that is, with a shifting definition. But whatever it means, we know it doesn't include us. And the court gave that such the back of the hand on Monday, um, not just saying we don't agree, but actually saying the definition of sex is irrelevant. You know, this is another great thing. Of course, it just opinion says, well, people say it means this, or maybe meant that. The question is not what is sex. The question is, what can we do with sex? And by any definition of sex, we know, you know, it was impossible to fire Amy without taking into account her sex, even if what the employer truly thought they were doing and intended to do was to have a no trans people policy, right? That doesn't matter because that necessarily takes sex into account any way that you can skin the cat of sex. So that is so key because we've seen the Trump administration from almost the earliest days in office went first rescinding protections for transgender students, coming after trans service members, trying to take away our healthcare protection, trying to pit cisgender women and transgender women against each other. You know, all of these actions really turn on this idea of this very narrow, narrow definition of sex. And not only did the Supreme Court not buy it, but the Supreme Court just said, we don't even care what your definition of sex is. That's not the point. That's not what anti-discrimination laws are about. So this is just a fantastic thing when we think about not only the HHS rule, although that is a tremendous, tremendous timing, um, to, to have gotten that and to see it taken, you know, the reasoning completely gutted. Um, but I think that's true for about what a lot of what the Trump administration has tried to do, um, because it really has staked out its position on this definition, and that did not win the day on Monday. So we have a question from our own Art Leonard, um, who asks, how likely is it that state courts will follow the reasoning of Gorsuch to interpret state sex discrimination laws? I think there's a good shot. I mean, as you know, you know, I can't believe I'm telling this to Art Leonard, who undoubtedly wrote the newsletter, <laughs> which I learned of this news. But, you know, we've already seen a couple of states, certainly in Michigan and Pennsylvania, where the state human rights commissions um, have adopted this interpretation of sex under state law. And I think, you know, this uncertainty in federal law is probably the only thing that has been holding more state, you know, human rights commissions uh, and courts back. So now that we have a really ringing endorsement with a 6-3 majority, including Roberts and Gorsuch, I mean, I think that gives cover to anybody who thinks this is the right argument but is concerned about the political implications. It also makes states look really bad um, if their civil rights protections do less than federal law, because, of course, so many states have made a point of enacting state civil rights laws that go above and beyond what federal law requires in some way or another, precisely because it is recognized that those remedies are limited. So I think, if anything, this just, you know, encourages a rush for states to catch up. And that's really critical because, you know, as Kate mentioned, you know, there are places where federal law does not bar sex discrimination. So Kate mentioned some of the places where this will have an impact, fair housing, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Title IX of the Education Amendments, right, jury service, all places where federal law already bars sex discrimination. Now we know that includes LGBT people, too. But there are gaps in federal law, gaps that the Equality Act is intended to fill. And one of the most critical of those um, is the gap in public accommodations. So the federal law prohibiting discrimination um, in places of, of public accommodation does not include sex. 
you know, which means today, you know, a woman could be turned away from a hotel simply because of her sex, you know, LGBT or not. Federal law has nothing to say about it. Um, so there are gaps there, and that is a place where many states have already stepped in. Um, there are 45 states that have public accommodations laws, and all of those already prohibit discrimination based on sex. So that is a place where I think the state laws are going to be doing a tremendous amount of work in the aftermath of this decision, and it's so critical to see state courts. And why I think they will see the need to, in fact, follow on this reasoning is going to be those places where state law has already filled a gap that Congress has not yet filled. And I don't have any disagreement with Rhea. The only reason I took myself off mute is because I want to say hi to my good friend, Art Leonard. Art, it's good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the only thing to add is that I do think we may see a convulsion in a few states that, you know, really want to stake out some retrograde Neanderthal ground here to distinguish themselves. I mean, there is, you know, there's a fair amount of chatter and we've seen it um, from radical conservative voices who feel like, you know, Gorsuch was a seat they bought and paid for and how dare he betray them. So, so I do think there will be some folks, but I, but I think it will be, um, it will be a minority for sure. And, uh, you know, short lived. Thanks. So I have a question from Jonathan Sellers who asks for bisexual and non-binary people. Do you think we need to have um, you know, decisions with bisexual or non-binary plaintiffs to actually establish the protection? Or do you think that, you know, we're good to go on that front? So I think there will be decisions. I mean, whether or not we need it is kind of a different question. I think the reasoning unquestionably covers bisexual and non-binary people, just as it applies to, you know, the other statutes we've talked about, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, you know, all that being said, will there be employers and landlords and creditors who challenge that and who say, hey, that was only about Title VII, that doesn't apply to us? You know, yes, of course, there will still be discrimination. There will still be people who try to resist the result of this logic. So I do think there will be cases. I don't think we need them to say today that we are all protected in those contexts. But um, I think we will see, you know, obviously some resistance. I think it will be fairly easy for district courts to see that the reasoning of this opinion applies to those plaintiffs in those situations. So I don't Know that we need to go, you know, famous last words. I don't know that we need to go all the way back up to get rulings on that, but I do think there will be cases here and there, um, at least, you know, right out of the gate. Um, and so I have a couple people in the chat raising the question about um, religious freedom. And I know there was a section in the decision that talked about RIFRA. Um, and, you know, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering for your take on whether there's a back door that's left open there um, and how, how the fact that this is not a constitutional case plays into the religious freedom question. So on RIFRA um, and Kate, feel free to jump in. You know, I think the door is, the door is as open as it ever was. Um, and I actually take that to be a victory um, in the sense that, you know, the Paris Funeral Homes, which fired Amy Stevens, initially had raised a RIFRA defense um, arguing that even if Title VII applied to its firing of Amy, that it was entitled um, to discriminate based on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Paris Funeral Homes didn't seek cert on that question, and, you know, many people sort of wrung their hands why, and um, I think actually our victory shows the reason why, right? They were hoping for the big win. They wanted to get a win that said any employer can discriminate against trans people based on religious beliefs or not. You know, they didn't get that. Will they come back and try to get the smaller win under RIFRA? Of course, they've already been trying to do that. But I don't think that anything in this decision gives that movement uh, more momentum than it had. If anything, I 
take it as encouraging that the court sort of declined the invitation to opine on RFRA, um, which many, many, many amici on the side of the employers focused on. I think it's great the court didn't take the bait and said, look, you had a RFRA defense. You didn't ask us to review it. We're not going to say anything. Yes, RFRA is there. We all know RFRA is there. Um, so that is as true as it ever was. You know, that being said, there are a number of exemptions cases in the pipeline already, both at the court and, you know, kind of waiting in the wings that I think will present some of those questions. You know, the court now is considering the question about the contraceptive mandate, um, which I think could very much implicate its different context, but, you know, it's going to be another chance for the court to tell us what they think RIFRA means. The court has also already granted cert in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, uh, which, as many of you know, is a case where... Catholic Social Services uh, lost its contract uh, to provide foster care because it refused to follow the city of Philadelphia's non-discrimination rule when selecting um, parents to serve as foster parents. Um, and Catholic Social Services is now arguing they have a First Amendment right to that contract, essentially to contravene Philadelphia's rules and do it their way um, because their way is based on religious beliefs. Now, that's not a statutory uh, case. That's a constitutional defense. But I think, you know, obviously the one sort of informs the other and it raises the same um, specter of questions. There were many people who speculated when the court agreed to hear the Fulton case that that meant we were going to win these cases. And in fact, the court was then going to take something away, you know, in a, in a later decision. I don't know that I quite buy that uh, conspiracy theory, but, um, but, I, but I know where it comes from because uh, there is a sense that this, this win is sort of too good to be true. Um, there weren't any caveats to it. Um, and that's actually one respect in which, sort of picking up on the thread from earlier, um, I think Gorsuch's opinion, again, differs from what we've seen from Kennedy. You know, in the constitutional context, Justice Kennedy um, was really filled with existential angst about the change in this nation, very much, you know, supportive of LGBT inclusion, and at the same time, aware that there were others um, who were not as pleased. And there was always something in the opinion for those people. You know, he always gave some uh, something for the other side to come back with and say, well, Kennedy said, you know, our views are protected. We didn't see any of that from Gorsuch. Um, you know, obviously there is a reference to RIFRA, but we don't see a sort of in real endorsement of the idea that RIFRA, um, you know, would change the outcome. So all in all, RIFRA is there. You know, is it scary? Yes. Is it scarier after Monday? No. Completely agree. Not scarier, a little bit, maybe less scary, but there's no doubt that this is going to be uh, the contested ground uh, in coming cases, uh, the ones that Rhea mentioned specifically. Uh, I'm concerned about this court and I'm concerned about carve-outs based on religious exemption, uh, particularly in the publication or in the adoption realm. Um, it, and con I'm worried about the contraception case. Uh, so I do, you know, we're, we're far from done. We know that. Uh, but I do think there is a narrower ground on which that contest is going to take place. And, and, and more of our community protected today than without, uh, the, without Bostic. And, and we just have to understand that there's going to be continual contests, particularly with this court and this administration, um, hopefully that will not endure, uh, around what is the place, what is the right balance between a place in civil society for individuals and individual freedom and uh, religious thought and belief. So that sort of leads, I think, where, you know, where I wanted to go with our conversation next, which is, you know, 
what comes next? You've mentioned some of the cases, some of the battlegrounds that are sort of heating up now, but what are the sort of cases we should be watching? And I guess I would also ask, you know, on the legislative front, is there legislation we still need to be pushing for at the federal level, even though we have this fantastic SCOTUS ruling? One thing that I'm, that I'm uh, worried about uh, and feel a sense of uh, anxiety over is the court's um, uncanny uh, knack for providing a significant win to the LGBT community at the same time ruling in a way that decimates the rights of other parts of, uh, of our community and our brothers and sisters. So I'm thinking of marriage and the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we don't have a ruling yet on DACA, which is probably one of the most important cases that the court's going to decide. And, and we all know what's at stake uh, in terms of, um, of the Trump's just gratuitous attack on DACA. And if that protection is eliminated, what's going to happen for uh, not just those young people, but their families and their communities. And, and so as I think about what's next, just understanding that that we us us winning alone we, we can never think about us winning as the only thing that matters first of all us is everywhere we have many many lgbtq doctor recipients but even were that not the case even if there's not that that direct self-interest really thinking about what kind of country do we want to live in especially in this moment when there is so much at stake um, and and so many terroristic uh, activities coming from municipalities and from agents of government. I think the biggest picture of what happens next is, is that we have to understand more than I think most people ever did before, is that no apparatus of government is going to save us. That we ourselves, we ourselves as agents of, uh, and protectors of democracy and, and individual rights and dignity, we are the most important figures in this contest, that it won't be the court, it won't be the White House, even if we were to win uh, a change in November uh, across the board of Congress and the White House, that is not enough. For the, maybe for the first time in my lifetime, I feel like there is an understanding that what happens in the streets and what happens in individual conversations and how citizens show up and how individuals in this country who live in this country show up is the most important factor in determining where we end up. So if we take anything away from these last few weeks, I feel like it has to be that. Well, it's Thank not easy it. to follow Pete with a wonky answer about <laughs> legislation, but um, since you did ask, and since I do see a couple of references in the chat to the Equality Act, um, I, mm -hmm. I did just want to address that. Yes, we still need the Equality Act for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is, as I said, you know, there are already, there are gaps where federal law does not prohibit sex discrimination. Public accommodations is a huge one. The other piece I would say is federal funding. So entities receiving federal funds. Um, folks can still use those taxpayer dollars to discriminate based on sex, absent the Equality Act, and we need to fix that. Not just for LGBT people, although certainly because of LGBT people, but really for all of us. The second bit is that the federal definition of public accommodations is actually quite outdated. Um, it's limited essentially to hotels, movie theaters, and restaurants, which may sound like a lot of places until you realize what's not included. Banks, bookstores, malls, retail shopping, right? Huge. Um, that definition under federal law is significantly narrower than it is 
um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And one of the incredible things about the Equality Act is that it broadens the definition of public accommodations to meet that ADA definition, not just for LGBTQ people, but for everyone, right? So that means under federal law today, you could be, I could be turned away from a mall store because I'm black. Federal law has nothing to say about it. Mall store, not a public accommodation, right? So in that respect, I think the Equality Act does just a tremendous amount of work updating our civil rights laws for everyone and really reflects the way that we live our public lives today, uh, which is not, you know, solely at restaurants, drive-ins and, you know, at stadium, you know, entertainment stadiums or whatever was the case in 1964. So that's key. Um, and then the second reason is just this sends this really strong moral message that yes, anti-LGBTQ discrimination is illegal everywhere. I think we got an enormous, enormous mandate from the Supreme Court um, sending the message that anti-LGBTQ discrimination is wrong. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest things we got from the decision, right, is not just that people who experience discrimination will have recourse, but that hopefully we are cutting that discrimination off even before it happens, right? We are stopping it before it starts. We are saying this is wrong and we don't tolerate this in our country. That is what the Supreme Court decision does, but we need that message to be crystal clear in all of these contexts. And I think the Equality Act, uh, it does that um, in one fell swoop rather than waiting for sort of the piecemeal follow-on cases to you know, address this statute or that statute. Let's do it all at once and let's just say the Supreme Court has spoken. We knew sex included sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Um, let's just say so once and for all. And let me be clear, even as my, I exhort us all to storm the Bastille, I also absolutely, absolutely support the Equality Act. We need legislation that covers us and we need it understood that a, a piecemeal approach uh, harms too many people as you travel that road and the Equality Act will be one of the most important first things we do uh, in January next year. And just a follow-up question on the Equality Act um, from the chat. Does it provide a private right of action? So the Equality Act updates civil rights laws that already provide a private right of action. So where there is a private right of action, for example, under Title VII, right, the Equality Act just takes that definition of sex and then it expressly says, including sexual orientation and gender identity. Or where the statutes don't have sex, it adds the word sex. I think the more substantive change, again, is that definition of public accommodations, but it's the Equality Act is not creating sort of new civil rights laws from whole cloth. It's updating existing civil rights laws, most of which do include a private cause of action. Great. So we have about 10 minutes left. Um, I think I covered most of the questions. You know, I did see one question. Through. I did see one question, Cody, and I'm, I'm actually kind of curious yeah. about Ria's response to this, about why, uh, why, how we got to 6-3. Uh, why did Justice, <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts join the majority opinion? Um, I, I, I mean, I have my own answer, but I'm curious about your thoughts, Ria, and I so appreciate how thoughtful you are in answering all these questions. I've learned a lot just from you. Um, I think Roberts uh, uh, the chief justice role is always probably the most political role on the court. You know, they're always, you know, finger to the wind testing, you know, where, where should the court be? What's going to be the legacy? And I think Roberts probably more than most chiefs in the past and Art, you would probably be able to opine on this, um, is particularly aware of legacy. And I think, frankly, the reason he joined, first of all, it's a textualist opinion. It's, it's based on text, and I think that was, is easier for him. It's less ideological in that way. But I also think he recognizes that this is a right side of history moment for the court. I am very much hoping that same 
impulse will apply to the DACA question, for example, and some of the other uh, decisions that we're waiting to hear from in the next uh, week and a half or so. But um, but I think that would be, it's, it's less about any uh, ideological position and it's more, he can see the writing on the wall in terms of how history would regard him as a chief justice and and that coupled with this being a more mechanical ruling rather than an ideological one is how we got him. But I'm curious, Rhea, you would probably have a lot more insight to this than I do. I'm just opining. Well, we're all just opining. I said several years ago I was going to stop predicting what the Supreme Court was going to do because it, it was I was always wrong. It seemed to call for the opposite reaction. I think trying to guess what happened in hindsight is probably even less accurate. Um, I mean, to me, the question was, you know, not why is it 6-3, but why was the decision not 7-2? I mean, I, I actually think we should have gotten Kavanaugh as well. Uh, I'm a bit surprised, given the decision we got from Gorsuch, that we didn't see Kavanaugh sign on. And, you know, that I think just reflects this a sad, you know, trumping of politics over judicial philosophy. On the DC Circuit, Kavanaugh wrote a number of uh, Title VII opinions taking a textualist interpretation, you know, to be sure, different parts of the statute, um, but that he saw, you know, case law had developed in a way that he thought diverged from what the plain text of the statute required. And he was actually calling on the DC Circuit to, you know, return to the text in ways that generally would be favorable to employees, because of course, Title VII, I think, is quite intentionally very expansive employment uh, protection law. So I actually um, thought that, you know, if Kavanaugh were being true to his principles, he ought to have joined the majority as well. Um, disappointed that didn't happen. Um, again, I think that's just explained as politics over philosophy, because if you look at what he's written as a judge, um, he has written uh, some decisions on Title VII that would point the other way. So, uh, so sort of related to that, um, and I like how you said politics trumping judicial philosophy. Um, we've seen Trump, you know, appoint a huge number of justices to the, to the federal judiciary. And so, you know, one of the questions that we're thinking now is, you know, with the deck so stacked, how confident are we in, you know, relying on federal legislation in the, in the federal courts? Well, I've got a couple of reactions to that. One is, you know, a lot of this litigation is already in motion. So I don't know that we can keep any of this away from the federal judiciary. We have, you know, Amy was fired in 2013. And, you know, I guarantee you, she was not envisioning, no one in 2013 was envisioning that Donald Trump would be president in 2020, um, <laughs> having named several members of the Supreme Court bench. So, uh, you know, that train has already left the station. I think these cases are getting to the federal courts. Some of them will get to the Supreme Court. You know, we do have cases in the pipeline about restrooms, about sports teams, about dress codes, right? So these issues are out there, you know, whether or not LGBT people exist and whether or not anyone in this call thinks it's a great idea to get those questions before the Supreme Court, you know, they will get there. That being said, you know, the Supreme Court is obviously not our only hope. And as Kate says, you know, no one is coming to save us. Uh, we have to save ourselves. There are many places, you know, had we lost this decision, um, I think that obviously is something that Congress could have fixed by passing the Equality Act. And we have to remember that, you know, if we see judges getting it wrong or carving out exceptions that we don't see in the statute, you know, to the extent that comes from a statute, um, Congress can still fix that. Our state legislatures can fix that. Our states can step in. 
Um, we see that, as I said, to some extent, where states have already stepped in to fill gaps in existing public accommodations law. I think we can see that more and more if we see, you know, a hostile judiciary creating gaps that don't currently exist. And just another question that came in um, from Cameron Smith. What do you think of the viability of sex stereotyping and associational arguments for protection if we seek, you know, as we seek to apply this opinion in other spheres? Are those arguments dead or are we just relying on the textual argument now or are those still, you know, viable paths to take in these other uh, cases? I think they're still viable. I, I think they're possibly surplusage. I mean, when you think about the way that Gorsuch tackles this but for discrimination theory, it you know, I, I mentioned this a bit before, but it in some ways really encompasses sex stereotyping. And in a way, associational discrimination is also just another way of describing the but-for theory, because you're saying, you know, but for the fact that you're a man who is attracted to and dates other men and not women, you know, that's a form of discrimination. That's really another way of sort of rewording the but-for theory. So, you know, I still think those things are viable. And, you know, there certainly may be cases where there are uh, you know, there's discrimination involving sex stereotypes that goes, you know, beyond just the fact of being LGBT, right? All three of these cases involve plaintiffs who are fired simply for being LGBT. You know, you could still imagine an employer who says, well, you know, yeah, gay people are fine as long as you don't flaunt it, right? And who who gets who gets a short end of the stick under that policy? And you could see sex stereotyping playing a role there. Um, and saying, well, you, you know, you can be gay, but you have to be the right kind of gay person, right? Just like you, the employer can't require you to be the right kind of woman to get a partnership or the right kind of mom to get a job on the factory line. So there may be ways that this plays out, but when we think about sort of a straight hiring and firing case, I do think the, the Gorsuch reasoning is capacious enough to encompass both theories. <laughs> so final words, Kate? Maria? Well, I, I just want to say, first of all, how, how honored I am to be a part of this conversation. Rhea, I've always loved hearing you in meetings and, and to be able to hear you at length. Uh, uh, this has been very illuminating and, you know, I feel smarter uh, for it. Uh, Eric, thanks for the invitation. It's good to see you. It's good to see some of my old friends here. Uh, uh, I, I, I long for the day where we can all hang together again, uh, but until then, you know, I'll, I'll just repeat. Um, we are called to this moment in a way that uh, transcends anything I've ever seen in my life. And what I want to try to do uh, every day is be able to, when my grandkids are older, uh, and they look back and read about this in their history books and what a privilege it is to be alive in this moment, even with all how fraught it is. Uh, my grandkids are going to read about this and say to me, whoa, what did you do? And I'm trying to every day be able to answer that question in a way that makes me feel proud. And I hope we all do the same. And if we do, at some point, hopefully not too distant future, this nightmare for so many uh, will be over and we go onward until then. Thanks, Kate. Rhea, any final words? I can't possibly follow that. Um, I, <laughs> but, I, but I do want to say that, you know, when I look about what the protests have accomplished and when I look about what, you know, we uh, LGBT movement lawyers, advocates, people have accomplished in the courts, you know, over the course of the last several months, weeks, you know, we have changed the course of this country forever. I feel that so deeply. 
And although it's been a time of great pain, I think it is really also a moment of tremendous, tremendous joy. And I think we should hold that. Um, We should hold that joy. We should, you know, enjoy it. Do something frivolous today. I am very mindful that tomorrow is another possible Supreme Court decision day and we could see, you know, real movement on DACA or abortion. So let's favor this moment. Um, This moment is ours. We have changed the course of history. Um, Who knows what's coming next and we'll be ready to fight. Um, but let's just enjoy this moment uh, together. Thank you so much. I think Meredith has a few words to plug. <laughs> Meredith. Well, thank you, Cody. <clears throat> thank you for doing such a good job moderating. And thank you to Ria and Kate, two people I admire greatly. It's been a real privilege to get to hear your thoughts. Also want to thank Art because being able to listen to a podcast about that decision on the same day it came down um, these are things that we do at Legal uh, for our members and beyond. And uh, I hate to capitalize on Kate saying that we're called at this moment, uh, but Legal does depend on uh, donations uh, to keep our, us running. Eric puts together these great programs um, and he uh, can't do it alone. And we have a staff uh, and we have programs Throughout the year, of course, we've moved some things online. We hope to be able to have the clinics we run weekly in person again uh, very soon. Uh, But the mission of the organization is to serve the lawyers, but also to serve the community. So if you enjoyed this program uh, and you've been participating in these lunches, we ask you any any amount uh, that you can afford to contribute. If you go to lgbtbarny.org, there's a little purple donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, and uh, it would be great if you could show us some love that way. But thanks, everybody, again, for participating, and Eric, for putting this wonderful program together. And thank you so much for listening. Please find us on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. You can give us five stars, leave a comment. It's how other people discover our podcast. Thank you for listening. Happy Pride.